This sermon, More Than Words, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, May 30th, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning, everybody. Please open up your Bibles to the book of James. We continue our study. This morning, we are going to be limiting ourselves to just two verses in James 4. James 4 verses 11 and 12. With your Bibles turned there, would you please stand with me? Let's read God's word together. James continues to pastor the, the believers scattered. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You may be seated. Please pray with me. Well, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the precious time of singing, the prophetic word, those who have been serving. Lord, thank you that, that we gather this morning in the name of Jesus, united to him and one another in a way that can never be separated because it's the gospel that binds us. I pray now that even as we've drawn near to you in different ways in our short time here this morning, I pray now that, that as we draw near to you through your word, that you would be merciful and that you would pour out your grace for our good, for the testimony of this church, and above all things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've heard this story before, bear with me. It is one of my favorite stories to tell, so uh, it's, it, it's possible that I have told it from the pulpit before, but my grandfather was a pastor for 62 years out of his 92 years on this earth. Um, he was also an avid hunter. And you probably had to be an avid hunter if you were going to be a pastor in small-town Wyoming. Uh, I think that hunting was something that he needed to do just to put meat on the table and feed the family most of the time. But one summer, myself, my brother, and my cousin, we got to spend the summer in a small, dusty town, Torrington, Wyoming. Nobody has probably been there. Uh, but we got to spend the entire summer with my grandpa and grandma. I was about 10 years old, 
And we did a lot of things over that summer. We got in a lot of trouble over that summer. I should write a book about that summer. But one of the memories of that summer is when my grandpa took us out to shoot. He said, we're going to go out and I'm going to teach you to shoot. So he grabbed his 22 rifle and we drove out into the desert and he lined us up at the, in, in the front of his car and before he gave us any lessons, he said, look me in the eyes. And he said, do not point this rifle at anybody. He said, if you do, you are done. <laughs> you, will, you will forfeit your opportunity to shoot, and you will sit in the back of the car by yourself till we're done. So he gave the rifle to my cousin first, and it wasn't but for about 15 seconds. <laughs> and he swung around to look at my grandpa as he was instructing him. And guess what he did? He pointed the rifle at grandpa. And grandpa, without missing a beat, said, ah, you're done. He said, ah, you're done. Give me the gun. Go sit in the car. So off my cousin went. And he gave the rifle then to my younger brother. And I think my younger brother outpaced him by about five seconds because it was maybe 20, 25 seconds later that, it, that he swung around and pointed the gun. I'm not remember who it was, grandpa or myself. My grandpa and me said, ah, you're done. I told you, do not point that gun. Get in the car. Off he went. Now I'm feeling pretty good, <laughs> right? Because I'm the lone guy standing. Of course, I haven't had the gun in my hands yet. But he hands me the rifle. And you know what I was thinking. Don't point the gun at Grandpa. Don't point the gun at Grandpa. Well, I think I lasted maybe a minute, minute and a half. And you know what I did? I swung around and I pointed the rifle at my Grandpa. And he said, ah, you're done. Give me the gun. Get in the car. We're going home. He got in the car and his words were this. I told you. Do not point that rifle at anybody. There was a force <laughs> in which my grandpa, a force that remains with me today, in which he instructed us. And it, when, when it comes to our words as believers, when it comes to our speech, we have seen in a similar way this kind of force from James, haven't we? We've spent the last four or five weeks talking about human relationships and particularly the importance of our speech and our words to one another. James is not pulling any punches. James is serious. And we've felt that, haven't we? We have felt that. Well, he begins our text this morning by saying, do not speak evil against one another. In fact, five times James uses this phrase, do not. And four of those times, it's related to the way we talk to one another. It's related to our speech. They're negative commands. And four out of the five, James uses to teach us about our speech. And he begins our text this morning with a do not. 
Now, since the beginning of chapter 3, he has been working hard, hasn't he, to impress on our hearts the seriousness of our words. In a sentence over the past few weeks, we could say our speech matters to God. The words that come from our mouth, they matter to God. They are more than just words, aren't they? They matter to God. And this morning, we will, we will find out why in a way that we haven't even been encountered James yet. You think that James has been straightforward and to the point so far? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. This text takes the cake. And I, and I just want to say before we go on, I, I pray I pray that the, that the last four or five messages have had an impact on you. They have me. I was sharing with our community group Wednesday night, and I shared with Tim last Sunday, that particularly this instruction, this gospel-centered, clear instruction on the tongue, how the Spirit of God has been convicting me I feel like I've been asking for forgiveness more than, more than normal as I have found myself sinning, whether it's my wife or somebody else, sinning against others with my words. And in the kindness of the Lord, the Spirit making me more sensitive to that. In the kindness of the Lord, the Spirit causing me to ask myself questions, is this the way of peace with this person right now? I... I have been affected. These messages are penetrating my soul, and I hope they are penetrating yours as well. Now, before we get into this, I want to say to this day, back to my grandpa, I don't think that that, uh, uh, when I think about handling a firearm, I connect it to my grandpa's words that day in the desert. In my mind, I can't disconnect the two. And in a similar way, that's what James wants us to do this morning. He wants to connect our speech, not just to one another, but he wants to connect our speech to him. And our text this morning is meant to indelibly connect our words with our God. And we're going to see this in two primary ways. For those of you taking notes, the first point in the sermon this morning is this. When when we speak evil against one another, we attack God's people. The second thing James is going to help us see is when we speak evil against one another, we claim God's role. We claim God's role and we attack God's people. So notice how he begins again in verse 11. He says, do not speak evil against one another. That phrase, speaking evil, it's a broad, it has broad meaning. Depending on, the tran- depending on the translation you have, it can read, do not slander. Or do not malign. Some translations read, do not criticize or disparage. One translation even reads, do not backbite. But the smorgasbord, if you will, the buffet of translations there, reveals the breadth of James' intent. That that phrase there, speaking evil, it means literally speaking against. To speak against someone. Of course, James uses that word against, did you notice, in verse 11, three times. And the idea that he, he has, it, what he has in mind here is that whether true, whether something is true or false, don't use speech that attacks others, particularly those in the church. 
James has in mind speech that denigrates or belittles, runs somebody down, or judges them. From slander to gossip, James has in mind attacking words that directly or indirectly hurt others. We know what James is getting at here, don't we? He's not talking about respectfully debating ideas. He's not talking about friendly disagreements. James is is not prohibiting playful banter. He, he, He doesn't have humble biblical correction in mind. James has in mind verbally attacking one another with the intent to hurt or harm. Now, there's probably a lot of different ways that we can think about how we do that, right? It's very clear. You could spot it from a mile away. I don't think that's typically our issue. I think, I think that typically when we speak against one another, uh, we, we do it incognito. <laughs> you know what I mean? Typically, we do it in cognito. As, as we learned a couple weeks ago in James 4, 1 through 3, uh, our, our words tend to reveal the secrets of our hearts. And so I think that, that for us this morning, I think what the Lord wants to get at is it's the criticism cloaked in humor intended to put someone in a bad light. Yeah, you know Tim. <laughs> it's easy to cloak speaking against one another in what seems like innocent jest. I think it's things like passing comments that communicate your disagreement or your displeasure with someone, hoping to get your hearers into your camp. I love my community group leader, but don't you wish he would? It can be the, the nebulous post or tweet meant to sow suspicion about a person in the mind of the readers. I think what James has in mind here is is spreading a bad report, even if it's true. Listen, just because it's true doesn't mean it needs to be said, right? (laughs) So I think spreading a bad report, knowing that spreading it will undermine others' love and trust and respect for that person. I think we could say that self-righteous comment that judges someone's motives or questions character. Can you believe Derek and Dawn are raising their kids that way? We would never. We would never do that with our family. Veiled or not, James says, do not do it. Do not engage in it. Do not tolerate it. Do not support it. Do not perpetuate it. It's, look at the word, it's evil. It's a strong word by James. Your words are evil. Don't do it. There's no place for it. Especially in the church especially in the church. Did you notice what James did? James' favorite way to address his audience, have you learned by now? It's by using the term brothers. 19 times in this short letter, he refers to the audience as brothers. He has brothers and sisters in mind there. Three of those times is right here in verse 11, completely wrapped up in this command not to speak evil 
against one another. It's an endearing term, brothers. It's an intimate term. It's a redemptive term. In the church, we are brothers and sisters. We are not merely acquaintances. The moment you were saved by grace, you were brought into the family of God. And then in his wisdom, he, his spirit leads you to a local church like this, where you are surrounded by others who, who are in Christ as well, saved by grace, sins forgiven, bearing the righteousness of Christ like a robe, and awaiting the Savior's return. And those people are just people that you share something in common with. James says they're your brothers, your sisters, because we have been uniquely joined together by faith, by grace through faith in Christ. It means that we share the same hope. It means that we are indwelt by the same spirit, people in this room bound by the same word of God. We cling to the same promises. Our destiny is the same, not here, heaven. We share the same heavenly father. We're brothers and sisters. And God is our father. Christ is our savior indeed, but he is also our brother, according to the writer of Hebrews. So when we speak, so, so listen, don't pass over the thrice brothers in verse 11 tied to this command. James is making a point. He says, you realize who you're speaking against? It's your brothers. It's your sisters in the Lord. And that means that when we speak against one another, we are attacking God's people. Just consider that for a moment. We attack those that God crushed his son to save. We attack those that God is pleased to dwell in through his spirit. We, we attack those that God considers, as we learned in 1 Peter, a royal priesthood. People who are a people he treasures as his own possession. We attack those that God is preparing heaven for and will one day spend eternity with. That's who we attack when we attack one another with our words. Listen, to be clear, every human being is created in the image of God. Therefore, we should speak to them and talk about them with respect but when we attack brothers and sisters in Christ, we attack God's precious and holy people. Listen, I'm learning to consider my audience, not just when I'm up here preaching, but when I'm one-on-one -on -one with my wife who belongs and is precious in the eyes of the Lord with Tim as we sit and fellowship and plan, realizing he's not just my brother. He's not just a friend. He's not just a fellow pastor. This man belongs to God. The Spirit is committed to him. 
I'm talking to. So when we speak evil against one another, James reminds us you are speaking evil, Derek, against God's people. Do not speak against one another. Second, you'll notice what he says. He goes on. He says, when we speak evil against one another, we claim God's role. Those are my words, but I think that's what James is getting at. James says that when we slander and malign and judge one another with our words, it's not just that we attack God's people. That's bad enough, isn't it? When we consider but we actually elevate ourselves over God's word and therefore over God himself. Notice what James says in verse 11 again. Let's just start at the very beginning. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of or you, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. Did you catch, even if it's just a glimpse of James' logic here? It says, when we slander and malign one another, we judge one another, which is to elevate ourselves above each other, right? The imagery of judge is perfect. Think about a judge in a courtroom. If you've ever been in a courtroom, right? A judge sits what? Above <laughs> in the courtroom. He's in the highest place in the courtroom. He's there elevated above everyone else. That's what we do when we slander and malign one another. We set ourselves up as judges over them, as if we we can judge their hearts and motivations. We talk like we know exactly what's going on in their hearts. We talk like we know exactly what God's will is for that person. To be clear here, When he says that we are not to judge one another with our words, um, he doesn't mean that we never judge. You need to be careful with that. Because if that's your conclusion, then, then that position will keep you from being a doer of the word. We have to judge behavior to be faithful to Galatians 6.1. If a brother is caught in a sin... Go and gently restore him. I have to make a judgment on that behavior, don't I? A pastor needs to make a judgment on the character and gifting of a man who wonders if he's called to ministry according to 1 Timothy 3. Inherent in in church discipline is making a judgment about one's profession of faith as you look at their life according to Matthew 18. And so James is not, the judging that James has in mind here is, is, is not that kind of judging. It's the kind of judging that Jesus warned us about uh, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Judging self-righteously 
while oblivious to our own sinful hearts. That's, that is sinful judging, and it violates the law of God, specifically Jesus' commands to love your neighbor. So when slander and maligning and judging, when we find ourselves speaking in that way with our words, James says, listen, you're attacking each other, you're attacking God's people, but it's more than that. You're elevating yourself above the law. You're not just disobeying God. You are actually setting yourself up as a judge over the law. That, that's what he says in verse 11. Look at it again. We speak evil against the law and judge the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. James is saying that when we speak evil against one another, we elevate ourselves. Like that imagery of the judge sitting above everybody in the courtroom, we sit above God's word. <laughs> Just picture that. We elevate ourselves. We deem God's word to be beneath us. We declare, if you will, independence from God's breathed out, life-giving, all-wise word. And when we do that, with our slandering, maligning, belittling, and judgmental speech, notice what he says in verse 12. He says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. Only one. Not multiple. Not God and me. There's only one judge. There's only one lawgiver. He says, it is the one who both saves and destroys. And so when we judge God's word, we elevate ourselves above God's word. And when we elevate ourselves above God's word, because he is the giver of that word, we elevate ourselves above God. Do you see that? We claim his role for us. We assume divine prerogatives that belong to no one but God. We act as God in the lives of others with our words. Or as Peter Davids put it, in setting oneself up as judge, one has usurped. Good word. The role of God. That's James' point here. He's getting down to it. He goes, listen, listen, the way you talk to each other is serious. It matters to God. When you speak against one another, you are attacking God's very own people. But it's worse. When you do that, you put yourself above God's word. You declare independence from God's purposes and design for you. 
But it's worse yet. Because when you do that, you actually assume God's role. You set yourself on his throne with our words. (laughs) That's the point that James is making here in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. And notice how he ends. I think he's making a serious point, but I think he's adding some sarcasm when he says, but who are you? Derek, who are you with your gossiping lips acting as though you know everything, acting as though you are omniscient. Who are you with your belittling tongue? Who are you with your self-righteous judgments? Who are you with your maligning text messages? Who are you with your slandering social media posts? James has kind of given us the Job treatment here, isn't he? Gird up your loins and let me ask you, who are you, Derek? You're not the lawgiver and judge. There's only one who judges. And he is the one who both saves and destroys the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who directs all things, the one who has authority over life and death, the one true God who saves in all holiness and judges in all righteousness. There's only one, and it's not you, Derek. So excuse me if I ask you again, Derek, who, who are you to speak against your brothers and sisters? Who put you in charge? Who authorized you to sit on God's throne to rule and judge others? See, that's what's really going down when we attack one another with our words. It's more than just words. We claim God's role. We don't just attack people. We we assume God's position. So God wants us to think about our tongues. That's pretty clear. If you haven't figured that out over the last four or five weeks, well, hopefully it's hitting home now. God wants us to think about our tongues. He cares about our words. Our speech matters to him because as we have said over and over again, our tongues are connected to our hearts and they reveal what we believe about ourselves Our words reveal what we believe about others, and most importantly, our words reveal about what we believe 
about God himself. So, two simple questions for application. I think we got the point. Two simple questions for application. First one is this. Do you understand your speech through the mercy of the gospel? Not merely through your opinion, not merely through your feelings, but do you understand your words through the mercy of the gospel? I don't think that my, I don't think my grandpa ever took me shooting again. But as I said earlier, his words have stuck with me for 44 years, and even now they inform me when I handle a gun. I can't handle a gun without seeing my grandfather's head or face and hearing those words. And our words, we must view our words, those, those syllables and sounds that just pour forth out of our mouth. We need to understand them through the view of mercy. There's a wonderful promise in this very pointed command here. We've been learning, we've even sung about it this morning. Last week was, was outstanding as, as, as we just were able to understand how grace comes, and because of grace, we can draw near. Well, listen, as you yield your heart to the conviction of the Spirit this morning, and as we heard last week, you draw near to God in repentance, remember these sweet words of verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. He says, there is only one lawgiver and judge And did you notice what he says next? He who is able to save. Not just destroy, but save. That's the hope that springs forth out of this very pointed and serious command. The one who judges my Heart, the one who judges my words is the one who can save me from the sinfulness of my, of my speech. What a promise that we have here. Your sinful speech, as it says in Colossians, was nailed to the cross. It has been covered by the royal atoning blood that flowed from the cross where Jesus uttered these words. Do you remember It is finished. What does that mean? It means a lot. But one thing that it means is that the price that needed to be paid for my sinful words, it has been paid in full. I can draw near to the one who saves. I can draw near to the one in repentance and find mercy and find grace For my speech, for something that matters so much to God. See, if we don't understand our speech through the mercy of the gospel, if if we if this word save doesn't pop off the page at us, then what are we but left to ourselves and our ability to change and just do better? which is the world's philosophy, 
which is every other religion's philosophy. Just do better. But God says, no, you you can't do better. At least you can't do better enough. I'm that holy. And so as we heard this morning, he sent his only son who did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. That is, he left the perfect trinity, became a man without unbecoming God. And he died for sinners like you and I. He died for people like us who spew evil out of our mouths like nobody's business. He saves. And if you're here this morning, he can save you. Doesn't matter where your mouth has been. Doesn't matter who you attacked this week. Nowhere in the Bible does God say, I need you to get from point A to point B and then I'll take over and get you from point B to point C. God doesn't throw out a lifeline and say, grab it. He reaches down into the depths of your darkness and sinfulness as if it was the bottom of the ocean. And his saving hand in Christ Jesus scoops you up and breathes life into your spiritual lungs. And the Bible tells us it is all of grace. And now your life isn't merely reconstructed, but you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. That means you have new purpose and new meaning. You no longer have to subject yourselves to the futility of this world's philosophies and the humanistic thinking, the wastefulness and the vain and shallow and empty pursuits of this world. If you're looking for something this morning to fulfill you, you will not find it apart from the one who comes to save. And it's not really complicated. You don't have to be somebody to become somebody. You simply acknowledge who you are, a sinner in need of a savior. And from your heart, according to the Spirit's power at work in you, you trust Jesus. Romans 10 says that when we cry out, when we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths, he will mercifully save us. 
Listen, we need to feel the force of James' exhortation here. Do not speak evil against one another. But those words can only be embraced. They can only be cherished. They can only be applied when they are understood through the lens of life-giving mercy. Do you see the many, many words that will come out of your mouth just today through the lens of Christ and him crucified? Second, do you view your speech as as a gracious instrument in the hands of God. Listen to these verses, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, in Hebrews 10, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing. I love Proverbs 16, 24. Look at this picture. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Listen, I don't like honey. But a honeycomb looks pretty sweet to me. And I've heard it tastes pretty sweet. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health of the body. When the mercy of God, when the the mercy of the gospel redeems your heart, your tongue follows. So that, as we just read in those verses, so that you can be a gracious instrument in the hands of God as he works in other people's lives. Oh, he's at work in us, but he also wants to work through us and our words. According to the writer of Hebrews and the apostle Paul and the wise preacher of Proverbs, there are words, are instruments in the hands of God to to bring grace to his people, to bring life-giving soul Give his soul healing fuel. That's amazing, isn't it? Think about that. God wants to use your words to reveal his love for his people and promises to his people. He wants to use your tongue to reflect his character to those sitting behind you and in front of you and those you'll go off and spend eight hours a day this week at work with and those that you'll peek over the fence and say, hi, neighbor. God wants to use your speech to create the image of his son in the lives of others. He wants to use your speech to, to, to produce a harvest of righteousness and peace in his church. He wants to use my speech. He didn't just redeem my heart. He redeemed my tongue as well. So let me ask you a really big question. How is your tongue helping or hindering that word? How is your tongue? In what situations 
or with what particular people does God want to rein your tongue in? Does God want you to see your words through the lens of his grace and mercy? Your words matter to God. My words matter to God. The tongue that we once used to curse each other, God says you can bless one another now. So, like we've been seeing since the beginning of James, there's, there's room for examination here for all of us, isn't there? I want to encourage us, examine your tongue and get a third party independent examination. Whether that's your spouse, your parent, someone in your community group. And ask them two things. Where do you see grace in my speech? And where would you be concerned that I am attacking people and claiming God's role? And you know what? One more. Encourage. I have people in my life who God has used how they talk to me and about me as a tremendous means of grace. And I would submit you probably do too. Encourage them. Thank them. Thank you that when you open your mouth, it is a means of grace toward me. So examine self. Encourage others. And remember this as we close. The worship team wants to come up. Unlike my grandpa, God never says, you're done. Get in the car. It's over. God says this. Derek, see your heart through the lens of my word. And as we learned last week, repent. As we learned this morning, at the throne there is always mercy and grace. Repent. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Humble yourself, and I will exalt you and give you grace upon grace upon grace Niagara Falls grace, always pouring over us, never ending, just as Niagara Falls never runs dry, his grace never runs dry for your time of need, for your tongue to be tamed for the glory of God and the good of others, he pours out grace upon grace upon grace. His call to us is to believe, which means that we take him at his word, that we tremble at his word, that we obey him, knowing that it's not our obedience that will ultimately make the difference. 
It's his grace upon grace upon grace that changes our hearts and transforms our words. So that whether it is to someone in your home or someone in the workplace or that person whose life is spinning out of control in your neighborhood, your tongue can be a means of grace. God never says you're done. Get in the car. It's over. No, he says, come to me. Come to me. Trust me. Follow me. Be a doer of my word. And I will exalt you. One day. I will exalt you in a way that you can't even begin to fathom today as our words of praise, endless praise, pour out around his throne. Amen.